we can actually analyze the terms and conditions and prices paid and provide that information to the buyer. We can actually give that information to the buyer to empower them to negotiate or think of different strategies that they can save money. Think about how powerful that is. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey, Kryptonauts, hey, everyone. We're continuing our decentralized DC edition. This is Rangu, chief editor of BitCryptic. We have a special guest with us today, Jose Arrieta from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And my co-host is Yudu. Yudu. Hey, everyone. Uh, we're very excited, as Dan said, to have Jose today. Before we get to it, I just want to tell a little story of how I met Jose. I don't know, Jose, if you recall this. A few months back, uh, we're both at the Technology and Future Economy Conference at Johns Hopkins University. And I remember I was in the room on the panel. Uh, you were on the panel alongside with some other uh, industry folks. And I was Obviously, I didn't know you back then, so I was um, just listening, listening in. I was thinking, oh, there's a, a government official talking about blockchain. And I was, I made some assumptions. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, maybe he's just a, kind of a run-of-the-mill government officials who is trying to make some attempts at using blockchain for the government. But it turns out that you're a very engaging and funny <laughs> person and Actually, you turned out to be the most exciting speaker on the panel and who incidentally actually did some real work using this technology. So I'm, I was re I'm really excited to have you here and I'll let you to do the proper introduction yourself, but very happy to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show and I uh, appreciate the kind words about uh, the first time we met at John Hopkins University. I don't know what run of the mill is, but we, we certainly try our best to uh, push, push the envelope for the American taxpayer. And, and sometimes it works and, and sometimes it doesn't. But it, it's nice to hear some folks that are kind of outside of government that recognize that. So I appreciate the, the kind words. Absolutely. And for the listeners on the shows who are not familiar with Jose, he is dubbed as the Elon Musk of blockchain in the federal space. That is what I heard. So we are very excited to see what you, we have in store today. So I want to get to this, some of the kind of high-level questions. Uh, Jose, would you mind just give us a little bit about your background? How did you get into this space in the beginning, and what are you, what are you working on? Yeah, so you know, I moved here from northeastern Pennsylvania, and my dad started a mining company when I was about eight years old. So I actually grew up in a small, evolving company. And you know, when your dad runs the company, you start working when you're 12, and you really learn a lot about business. I moved to D.C. after 9/11. I, I played college basketball, and after 9/11, decided that uh, rather than be a grad assistant basketball coach and, and get a master's degree. I'd move to D.C. and try to get a master's degree, and I started doing work with federal contracts, in particular uh, leading business model transformation efforts. So uh, one of the projects I did early on in my career when I was a young guy was actually taking an existing uh, supply chain distribution network that was kind of federally run and, and turning it into a 4PL model, so a fourth-party logistics model. And it was about a $2 billion a year supply chain. I did some work in the intelligence space, collection space, where we were building enrollment 
So collecting information on people, biographic characteristics, enrollment, vetting, adjudication, and redress. So building a series of systems that could actually identify terror threats around the world based on different activities that, that may be occurring in different domains that they operate in, which is really kind of got what got me into big data uh, and, and, and the importance of data analytics. And, and this was the time, guys, where you know, Facebook couldn't tell how many people on the Facebook platform had dogs. It was before they had actually really kind of driven into that space and driven down that road. Then I did some work where I was kind of the industry point person, both for uh, the Department of Homeland Security and then as an executive for uh, the Department of Treasury. And at Homeland Security, I learned a lot about the operational delivery of businesses and a lot about managing big data. And then at Treasury uh, is where I really became exposed to uh, blockchain and emerging technology. Uh, and at Treasury, I was lucky enough to work with a cross-functional group, National Security Council working group, that was focused on emerging technology and the importance of emerging technology to national security policy in the United States. And, and my a big push was I felt blockchain uh, should be higher on the list of priorities for this working group in terms of understanding it. And that's really where I started to kind of learn and understand how people were implementing blockchain, in particular in the banking segment, which is what Treasury regulates and oversees. And I feel blessed to kind of be exposed to that because uh, they were the truly the pioneers in trying to understand it, and and I was getting kind of firsthand exposure to some of the largest banks in the world and their experience with this technology, their concerns with the technology, and the things that they understood and didn't understand. So that's kind of how uh, my career involved to blockchain. Spent a couple of years doing that, and then I jumped back into operations and managed the largest contracting vehicle, revenue generating contract vehicle in the world. It's a vehicle that generates about $15.2 billion in annual revenue, and it services 1,000 customers at federal, state, and local level with over 5,000 suppliers. And uh, I was able to convince the leadership at that organization to give me some money, about $149,000, to do a blockchain implementation. And basically what I did is I took the contract award process, how we actually bring suppliers into our business network, and I automated the contract award process on top of a blockchain. And so... Now, my idea on using blockchain was much more built around enterprise use and using it as a function to rationalize the delivery of systems and create a standard data layer where I could rebuild value exchange off of that data layer, off of that blockchain in and of itself versus the versus the crypto approach, which was really focused on allowing two entities that do not know one another, allowing them to kind of interact with one another with trust. What I was saying is... How do I create trust in the data so I can actually rebuild a business model that's currently dependent on 52 applications? I can rebuild it using a microservices strategy and rationalize those existing applications and actually make the process more efficient. So that's kind of where I got my, you know, before I got to HHS, that's kind of where I, I my path and how I got to where I am in my level of understanding. So when people think of blockchain innovation, you know, a public official at some government agencies and the first thing they have in mind, at least for our audience, so it's a very diverse audience, but a lot of our guests, you know, come from Silicon Valley or they're entrepreneurs or blockchain startups or they're building on uh, the Ethereum blockchain, which is the open permissions blockchain and their project would have some sort of uh, utility tokens to uh, incentivize uh, network stakeholders. But you're mostly involved with the enterprise 
architecture uh, blockchain. So to help our audience like to scale the problem that you're trying to tackle with with government and trying to achieve cost savings or efficiencies or to cut down potential uh, waste uh, or abuse. What is the problem with with government as a consumer and deliverer of goods and services? Because I know that federal government is the largest employer in, in D.C., right? So perhaps you could give us some numbers uh, to so that we can better, you know, see you know, how big of a role that government play. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. So I think when you think about the federal government, the U.S. federal government spends somewhere around $600 billion a year in, on goods and services through contractual mechanisms, public procurement. By and far the largest spending entity in the U.S. federal government, DOD. It, depending on the year, around $500 billion in annual procurement spend is, is spent through the Department of Defense. The U.S. federal government also spends about $800 billion a year through grant mechanisms. And the largest spender in grants is Health and Human Services, where, where I work uh, currently. So when you think about like just Health and Human Services alone, where I work, we are a $1.145 trillion impact on U.S. GDP annually. We would be one of the top five or 10 largest economies in the world if we were an, a country. So uh, the impact is pretty significant. And when you think about, so then to your question about blockchain and why are we, why are we using blockchain, when you think about how government has evolved, it's evolved into a separate set of applications that deliver mission outcomes. But there's no kind of standard set of data that exists where I can look across the portfolio of spend, like the $26 billion a year that I spend at HHS, that I oversee at HHS, and get an understanding of where all the spend is occurring. Now, I can collect that information. I, I can message out to the 12 different operational divisions that are doing work and say, send me documentations on your spend over the last year. And then I can amalgamate that into giant Excel spreadsheets. And, and I can start to go through and analyze it. Uh, but that takes a lot of time. Uh, for government to operate more efficiently, wouldn't it be amazing if I could analyze that spend data and have visibility into those contracts within a second? And that's what we're doing with blockchain at HHS. We're using Hyperledger Fabric. We're layering it over the five contract writing systems that exist in HHS. HHS awards about 100,000 contracts every 18 months that are valued around $40 billion. And each of those contracts, let's say, are about 10 pages long. So we are actually using automated machine learning algorithms to extract data from the five contract writing systems. We are using the automated machine learning algorithms because what we're doing is we're rationalizing the fact that V.6, VER, version, all mean version, before we put the information onto Hyperledger Fabric. Now, we've created a standard data taxonomy within Hyperledger Fabric that's a representation of all the data that should exist in these contract files. And what we're doing is we're creating this data layer within Hyperledger Fabric that's a representation of all of the contract award data from across HHS. Now, mind you, while we're doing that, the five contract writing systems that are delivering mission for health and human services, we're not turning them off or disrupting them. We're just accessing the data, putting it on Hyperledger Fabric. We're then taking Hyperledger Fabric, right? We're using proof of authority versus proof of work, proof of stake, right? Because we, we actually have trust. We know who we're doing business with. They have tax identification numbers. I can validate and verify that they exist with the IRS. 
What we're trying to do is create a standard, trusted layer of data on Hyperledger Fabric that's immutable. And then what we're doing is we're actually using a microservice strategy, and we're using Hyperledger's orchestration layer to actually build microservices for specific execute actions off our blockchain-based data layer. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. One of the microservices we've built is actually automates the analysis of terms and conditions and pricing on purchases in 10 product categories. And this is, we just did this over the last seven, eight weeks and just publicly shared this about two weeks ago. So your timing is excellent, right? So we, we built this algorithm, right? We call it soft AI, call it machine learning, but we built this algorithm that analyzes terms and conditions and pricing of 10 product categories. And within a second now, a contracting professional across HHS can see all of the spend that exists in, an, in a live environment, in a live operational environment, all of the spend that exists across the entire department for something like gloves, for something like software licenses. And we can actually analyze the terms and conditions and prices paid and provide that information to the buyer. We can actually give that information to the buyer to empower them to negotiate or think of different strategies that they can save money. Think about how powerful that is. And we know that that information is accurate. We know that information is a representation of all of the data across HHS. And we can give that to them at the point of checkout, right? So if you're in Target and you're going to buy like a toy, I got, I have a couple kids, right? So I'm going to buy a toy for one of my kids and I, I see the price is $20. I may say, okay, as I'm going to check out, I may type into Amazon and see that the price is 18 And if I show that price to the cashier, they'll actually sell it to me at $18. We're actually giving the buyer in the federal space that information with this algorithm. So we, we built some other microservices as well, but that's kind of what we're doing. That's kind of the problem that we're trying to solve. Now, when we think about it, we actually think about each dollar invested in three areas. We think about how is this dollar invested going to save us money at the point of purchase, the target example? How is this going to increase processing time? I haven't given you an example of that yet, but I will if you want. And then finally, what is the savings from a tech modernization perspective? Because we're modernizing in a secure cloud environment. And so every dollar invested is tracked in those three categories. And then we're doing a return on investment on every dollar invested. And, and we are and we are tr and we are also tracking the return on investment in each of those categories. And, and from a processing time perspective, and I'll, I'll stop so you guys can get in some other questions. What we're saying is, and I'm, I'm going to make up some numbers here to, just to make you understand, because I know a lot of listeners aren't aren't kind of working in the federal government and will not understand this. But when you think about it, right? Let's say it takes 110 days, 200 days to award a federal contract, and that's fairly standard. 110 is actually pretty fast, but it's a long time. Well, imagine if I could automate a lot of those processes. Imagine if I could validate and verify that a firm exists in a second versus taking 10 days. Imagine if I could automate a financial responsibility determination so that firms that had strong financials, I could determine they had strong financials very quickly and I could focus my energy as an evaluator on the ones that didn't have strong financials or were borderline. And I could take that from 25 days to an hour to a second. That would increase the processing time. So the other thing we're doing off the blockchain is we're actually rebuilding the business process, leveraging robotics, processing automation, leveraging machine learning to make it go faster. And we found that there's tons of savings there and that that adds, a, and that, that adds significant value for both the U.S. taxpayer, the government employee, and the industry partner. So th those are kind of some of the things we've been doing and we've been building and we've been having a lot of fun. That's fascinating. So, Jose, you mentioned, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about kind of the environment uh, you're working 
working and also how did you uh, carry this this process this project out and having me having worked for the federal government as a consultant I am fully aware of all the bureaucratic hoops you have to jump through how did you manage to overcome the red tape and convince your organization to adopt a new technology like blockchain even if it's just a proof of concept Wow. Well, that's a tough question. I mean, first, let me just say that there's a lot of luck and you have to kind of land in an environment where the culture is open to change. And I think at Health and Human Services, the secretary has this uh, initiative called Reimagine. And and Reimagine has really kind of allowed the culture of HHS to be comfortable with change. And I was very lucky to land in that environment. Uh, the other thing is, is I actually was able to do this prototype, to do a, a prototype before I came to Health and Human Services at the General Services Administration. And there were some strong leaders there that actually <clears throat> let me invest a small amount of money in creating a prototype. So when HHS hired me, uh, they knew of that prototype and, and they were well aware of it. In fact, I was interviewing for the job at HHS and met someone else at HHS that was friends with the interviewee at a conference where I was talking about the prototype I had built at GSA. And the individual went back and told his friend at HHS about this project. And the guy picked my resume up off the desk and said, I just interviewed him like last week. We're going to hire him. So I, I came in under some really good conditions. But there's still a challenge of kind of selling this to the workforce. And so we've done a couple of things, both at GSA and HHS, to make this successful. And the first thing that we did is we very much focused on articulating not the technology, but how we would transform the business model. And what we basically said is we want to empower decision-making at the operator level, at the individual level, by giving them access to all the data that exists across the Department of Health and Human Services from a procurement perspective. And so that our goal was actually to centralize and standardize data, but allow for decentralized decision-making and execution on the basis of a standardized data set. So we didn't actually talk mm-hmm. about how we were going to do that. We talked about the business model change. The second thing that we did that I think was very powerful is we immediately went out and we started to map the life cycle of what they do using an approach that I've dubbed, and I'm sure other people call it this as well, uh, human-centered design. So we've actually sat down and we mapped out how they click through their existing systems. The fact that one system they have to com- like submit 25 times before it will actually submit. The fact that they have to log into 10 different systems to achieve, you know, one outcome, one objective. And so, because if you ask a group of people to tell you what their pain points are, they'll tell you a number of things, but they'll also leave out some of the things that are pain points that they've gotten so used to that they just accept as normal business process. So it's important to sit down with them and map out the life cycle from a human-centered design perspective. So I think that's the second thing we did that allowed change to occur. The third thing that I did is we didn't necessarily ask permission to build a prototype. We went ahead and we took a small amount of dollars and we actually went ahead and built a prototype. And then we started to show it to the workforce so they could see how it would improve their lives and how it would improve their ability to do their job, to get them excited about it so they could see how the automation would impact them. And, And here's the thing. I mean, it's one thing to talk theoretically about how you can create value. And no one truly understands it. But when they can see it functioning, they can get an understanding of how it will improve their ability to do their job. And it makes it much easier for them to buy in. And then lastly, while we were building the prototype, we, we wrote a full-blown business plan you know, with a full set of financials, with a return on investment and a net present value analysis. 
and we documented where we thought we needed to spend money, what we thought the returns were be, and and we measured ourselves against those returns. So I think that you know we that's the approach that we took, and then a constant articulation of what we were doing. And you know, let me be honest with you, I don't know every problem, I don't know every aspect of the process. I'm sure there are thousands of people that have better technical understanding of different things that you can do with blockchain. Uh, but being open to all of the feedback you're receiving from multiple sources and figuring out a way to kind of put them together so that you can you can execute something successfully. So I think those are the three, four, five keys if you want to drive change in a large, complex organization. And no, like, you know, I'm taking a risk. You know, I'm this isn't like something that's, you know, I've, right. I've yeah, I, you're out there, you're taking a risk, you're, you're doing it in an agile DevOps manner. And you're kind of solving problems as you go and using that agile DevOps human centered design approach, you're actually able to kind of fix issues as you go and, and create a level of change management and comfort through the process that you wouldn't create if you just collected requirements and built some. And I, and I think that's extremely important. Right. Yeah. So this is a, a great example of you know, entrepreneur in the U.S. government and being agile, focusing your design on the user experience. You know, you're demonstrating the value proposition by quantifying the cost savings and the the ROI. You're building out test cases. You're you know, mobilizing internal capacity to to bring the, the project forward. So this is you know kind of demonstrates that. There are universal universal principles of design effectiveness, whether you're in government or private enterprise or you're a blockchain startup. So this is um, so, so I think this is uh, great to hear. Very cool. Thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate the reference to entrepreneur. I think you know, uh, from my perspective. You know, if you think that you can make change, if you if you see an opportunity to add value, sometimes you just have to go for it, and, and you gotta love the process. You know what I what I would add to what you just said is, you know, and you guys are doing this right with your with your podcast now. I mean, you know, you didn't the outcome of creating a podcast isn't what attracts you to creating the podcast. It's the process and what you're learning along the way. And if you commit to a pro- to the process because you love the process, you know, and I, I really enjoy the process of change. I really enjoy the process of kind of going out there and trying to make things better and measuring it and seeing where you end up. And, and you, sometimes you learn more in your failures than you do in your successes. But if you love the process, you can end up in a really good place and you can do something quite innovative. Uh, but you can't just love the endpoint. You gotta actually enjoy the process, and I, I truly mm. enjoy the process. It's just like the old adage goes, right? It's not about the destination; it's about the journey. That's right. I think that applies rings true also in the blockchain space. So, looking ahead, we want to get your opinion, Jose, on um, how do you think the blockchain technology will evolve over the next few years? Uh, do you see any? exciting projects that will happen in the next five or 10 years? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because people always ask me about the next five or 10 years and I <laughs> tend to be very present focused. And But let me tell you kind of what I, when I think about the future, and, and I would argue that it's even closer. I think that any business 
any mechanism that involves exchanging value. And I, and I would consider a business and a federal agency and an NGO as mechanisms that facilitate the exchange of value. I think that there is an opportunity uh, going forward over the next five or 10 years where the word blockchain will be something that the people that run the company understand, but they don't talk about anymore. And where you'll see entrepreneurs in every space redefine how value is exchanged, leveraging blockchain as a medium to redefine how value is exchanged. I think that there's an opportunity for a private equity firm to, you know, create a, a a blockchain-based data layer and use it to actually integrate like five or six companies that they've purchased and redefine how they deal with their and redefine more efficiently and and to add more value for how they deal with their customers. We'll lower the costs associated with their supply chain and distribution by redefining the supply chain and distribution function of the five businesses that they've purchased without disrupting the five or six businesses the way they're functioning while they're actually rebuilding the business model. I think that there'll be a series redefining how value is exchanged, uh, specifically in media and then the healthcare industry. I, I think there's significant opportunities to get, uh, get there. Again, as now you have a capability where I can take all of the data that exists across the business network, I can compile it on an immutable record, and I can use the accuracy of that data and that information to actually redefine execute functions, to redefine business functions that normally occurred over five or six different businesses leveraging five or six different applications. And I think the other unspoken power of blockchain is that as the business owner, I can own all of my data. And if I am providing a commercial off-the-shelf, if I'm using a commercial off-the-shelf technology to drive a certain solution, or what maybe it's a homegrown application that I've built, regardless, I will always have a record of my own data and I can I can start to interface with different cop products as the market evolves versus being locked into one provider. So I think it's a it's very much empowering the entrepreneur who's using the blockchain to redefine the value proposition of a business. And, and no matter what industry you look at, I think that's possible. Remind you that I didn't even talk about the value of you know, an, a poor, underprivileged individual that lives in La Paz, Bolivia, and will never have an identity, mm-hmm. will, will never mm-hmm. have the ability to actually open a bank account because they don't have an identity, will never have the ability to create an economic record because they don't have an identity. And now I can do a thumbprint scan, I can do an iris scan, and I can have an immutable digital identity of that individual. And maybe I go ahead and I tag it to a license because people are comfortable holding a card, but that will exist for the rest of that individual's life and be able to track vaccinations, track any type of economic record that they have, give them the capability to open up a bank account and maybe start to purchase things and create credit. And I didn't even go there and talk about those things. So I, I think there's a lot of possibilities out there. Uh, but I, again, I think that the redefinition of how value is exchanged using blockchain as a medium to allow existing business models to function, create a standardized data layer, and redefine value exchange, leveraging a microservices strategy off of the blockchain, I think that is the the immediate and, and most forthcoming disruption that will occur over the next five years. Right. So you're in D.C. and you've had several runs, execution with supply chain related projects. We want to gauge your temperature and how do you feel about the innovation climate climate in DC? Do you feel like companies and entrepreneurs 
uh, that DC is a place that would attract them. How, how do you feel regulators or Congress or government agencies as a place of work or as a place that uh, fosters and encourages innovation in this area? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, you know, having worked for a regulator uh, directly for a very important regulator in, in the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, I think that sometimes we overthink about or overanalyze risk as it relates to regulations versus actually having a conversation with a regulator and educating a regulator on what we're trying to do. And I think if you take the approach where you immerse yourself and actually start to educate a regulator, you'll find that they're very open to innovation. And then they'll actually provide some really good feedback to you on what you're doing. Uh, I think that you don't just, I guess if you're far away from Washington, D.C., or you've never spent a lot of time here, that may be something that is foreign to you and you may not think that's the case. But being somebody that's lived here and then worked directly for a regulator, I've noticed that I was kind of shocked to learn that that's really how a lot of the regulators kind of function and and operate. I I think to your second point, you know, DC is very open uh, to innovation. Uh, It's a different model for innovation, right? I mean, so doing business with the federal government, uh, there are there are still rules and regulations and public policy objectives that, as a federal employee and and as a federal agency. Uh, we have to follow and we have to achieve. And these rules and policy, public policy objectives have been in place for, you know, since 1950, since 1960, since 1990. Uh, So that does limit some of the flexibility and the speed to market that you may be able to drive in a uh, a commercial marketplace. And if you're building an application or capability in Silicon Valley, However, that said, I think that this is the most open environment to innovation, and and it has been, you know, going back over the last five or six years. I think the market for innovation in Washington D.C. has continually become more and more open to innovation and change over time, and we've looked for ways to to digest innovation, to accept innovation, and to embrace innovation. So, yeah, that's my perspective. I've lived here for a few years, so that's kind of the evolution that I've seen. You know, I did grow up in Northeast Pennsylvania in a small little town called Susquehanna, and the folks up there, you know, they disagree with me on that a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's kind of the way that I see it. DC is open for business. Jose, you mentioned you want to take your experience on managing, pitching, and executing a blockchain project. And there were some good learning experiences. There were some pains, and you want to continue that journey to transfer that knowledge uh, to other areas and to uh, execute more projects, perhaps uh, to be more ambitious in uh, meeting uh, your overall goals for the, the federal government and for your employer. But you also, uh, I heard, uh, will be teaching a class on blockchain at Johns Hopkins University. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that what is the class like? You know, will it be a case study based like class? Because it's an MBA class, I, I heard. Will, be, will there be a capstone project? Will you connect students to actual blockchain projects? Yeah, no. So, first of all, I appreciate you bringing that up. I think the one of the only ways that you can continually evolve uh, is either by continually kind of trying different projects, you know, that serial entrepreneur approach where you're where you're learning along the way, or uh, by teaching. And and I've had a number of uh, really good mentors throughout my life, whether it was uh, 
being a basketball player or yeah, just learning how to navigate when I first got to DC or, you know, watching my stepfather run his company and him, you know, teaching me how to build a company. Uh, so I, I really like, enjoy teaching and I, and I hope that I'm, I'm giving some level of knowledge back. Although I feel like most of the time when I teach, I'm actually learning more than I'm giving to the students because you, you really learn a lot when you teach. So, you know, a, a unique opportunity came up. I've been teaching uh, since I was 30 years old at community colleges and I teach sometimes at UVA as an adjunct, just kind of some night classes. A very unique opportunity came up to teach with Professor Jim Liu at Hopkins and to teach a blockchain course. And I'm super excited to do it. I think the way that we're looking at structuring the classes, we want to create some baseline fundamental understanding of what blockchain is and really kind of dispel the myths and the differences between permissioned and non-permissioned and kind of the fact that, you know, they each drive different capabilities and there's some enterprise use uh, for blockchain just as well as non-enterprise use. So I think there's there's part of the class is building some fundamentals. I think the second part of the class, and, and this will be a struggle to kind of teach, but I think it's really important to create perspective around how a market evolves. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you read a book like Digital Gold or or if you read a book about the computing industry and how it evolved in the agent in the in the 80s, if you take a step back from the technology and you take a step back from the brands like Apple and, and Microsoft, I think it's really important to understand the different players in the space and the different entrepreneurs and the different companies that they created and how some of their companies tripped up over certain regulations and how they dealt with that. And some tripped up over certain regulations and didn't deal with it, and it ended up burning them. So I think there's a very important lesson in, in seeing it through that perspective versus just functionally how it can work and, and the, the fundamentals of a business. So I think I'd like we would like to inject some of that knowledge into the class as well. And then thirdly, I'm a huge proponent in case-based learning. Uh, in fact, every course that I teach is 100%. Uh, case-based learning. And I, I don't know that Professor Jim and I figured out how to bring this point across just yet in the class, but I'll, I'll give you some ideas that, that we have as it relates to case-based learning. And I think basically we want to challenge the students to actually target a specific industry, uh, to just target a specific data set, uh, and to actually think through the fundamentals of how they'd use blockchain to build a business off of that data set. I think the only way that, or, or in within that industry, I think the only way you can do that is one, by having the students work with you to actually identify some case studies. I, I'm sure we'll go with a couple to the class, but if there's a student that has come up with a really good case study, letting them explore that as well. And the other is actually bringing in some folks that are actually doing this in different spaces, you know, other than the work that I've done in government and allowing them to share their experiences as it relates to implementation. The understanding that data is important. You're not just going to build a, a blockchain from scratch and have people give you data. You kind of want to identify where you're going to receive the data from so that you can use the data to be the value proposition and, and be the mechanism that allows you to extend value off of the ledger. But I think that's the approach we're going to take. Uh, not 100% ironed out yet. I really hope the students uh, enjoy it. And we're going to be very open-minded egalitarian in nature in terms of how we engage the students because it's as much about them shaping the class as mm -hmm. it is about us providing a baseline series of fundamentals. That sounds amazing. And if I were still in grad school, I'd love to take that class. If you're around, <laughs> if you're around I'd love it. You guys are entrepreneurs yourself. Maybe you can come back or, or via phone. I, I don't know where you all live at. 
maybe you can come back. And, I'm actually uh, based in DC, Jose. So if you if you see <laughs> like a like an auditor in your class, you know, don't be surprised. Yeah, or and even if you want to come in and talk to our students about kind of what you've been hearing on your podcast. I mean, you guys are at the tip of the spear and kind of hearing what's going on in the space. I think if you were open to it and you had some time, we'd love for you guys to to engage. Yes, challenge accepted. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. I was reading somewhere how the explosion of MBA classes in blockchain and cryptocurrencies are, are happening at major campuses around the country, not just MBA. Uh, there was a story, I think, in, in, in a major publication, I think either New York Times or Washington Post, saying something about how different departments, academic departments now, are sort of struggling or engaging in some internal debates of who should control the curriculum or shaping the curriculum on blockchain since it's so interdisciplinary because it crosses economics and computer science, mathematics and IT operations and and, and business, right? So I think it's, it's interesting to see where your students will take their knowledge. So it's funny that you bring that up. I'm, I won't name the school, but I've been advising the dean of another uh, business program on this exact challenge and then just kind of the data science and how to, and, and by the way, guys, there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter in data science than me. Right? I'm just a fly on the wall that has fun kind of thinking about this stuff. So it's interesting what you say, because I, you know, when you talk about blockchain and when some I, there, I don't know that it should be placed someplace and led by some program. I think that you may be defeat. You know, if you if you make a decision like that, you're actually defeating the capability before you even allow it to evolve, or defeating the ability to exchange value before you even allow it to evolve. I think with with a technology like this, and what's so exciting about this technology is, if you go out there and and you kind of plant your flag in the ground and you start to kind of innovate with it and you start to pilot things. It doesn't matter if you're in the business school. It doesn't matter if you're the leader of human re- the human resources department. It doesn't matter if you're if you're running a podcast. You will actually be a part of how uh, the media world reshapes itself around the technology, and and you will create the framework and the principles for how to do that successfully. The same thing as it relates to a business school education program. So I, I think anybody that asks me that question, if they say where does it fit, I say. It doesn't fit anywhere. It fits with somebody that has passion for it and someone that's willing to put energy into it and, and let it evolve and let it kind of reshape whatever space that individual operates in. And there'll be lessons learned that can be shared across the board. I think you got to, you kind of got to let it evolve. But that, must, that may be my basketball days coming back to me, a big believer in kind of letting a team evolve around its skill sets versus kind of driving a certain model of play. But I think it's extremely important to think about it that way. Right. That's our course with that decentralized spirit, building the ecosystem from the ground up and let it grow organically. Well, and if you look at cities, I mean, if if you look at cities around the world, I mean, it, it, a lot of places, Constantinople, Paris, right? I mean, even when cities were destroyed, they were rebuilt right where they were for a reason. And you can take a city that's completely destroyed and the ecosystem of that city, uh, when it's rebuilt, will have a lot of the same functionality and capability and stores and interactions that occurred 
the way the city was formed before. But it's an ecosystem that evolves in and of itself on its own. Anytime you plan it, it never works that well. It's an interesting concept. We'll we'll see how it goes. Well, we're short on time, but for folks who want to find out more about what you're doing, you could let them know, you know, how they'll find you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll They'll find you at different venues in the nation's capital because you're an, you're an evangelist and you're very active and you're you're out there and you're outspoken and you'll be teaching a class at Johns Hopkins. And so, any last thoughts for audience? You know, how how do they get in touch with you? You can ping me on LinkedIn or you can send me an email if you want to chat about it. But I think just messaging me on LinkedIn, I I try to respond as much as I can. And I'm, and I'm happy to share, you know, whatever it is I can, I, again, I can share. You know, we, we just have a little proof and, uh, you know, we're, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that have a lot of, a lot better insights than, than I do, but we would be, I'm more than happy to share anything that we've learned along the way. That's Thank great. You. I think this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Jose, and good luck with your project. It was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you all. And then thank you for your interest in, in what we're doing. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor in chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.